In the graceful pleasure gardens behind the Pope's ancient palace in Avignon stands a bench from which one can overlook the Rhone, the flowery banks of the Durance, hills and fields, and a part of the town. One October afternoon two Danish ladies were seated on this bench, Mrs. Fonts, a widow, and her daughter Eleanor. Although they had been here several days and were already familiar with the view before them, they nevertheless sat there and marveled that this was the way the province looked. And this really was the province. A clayey river with flakes of muddy sand and endless shores of stone-gray gravel, pale brown fields without a blade of grass, pale brown slopes, pale brown hills, and dust-colored roads, and here and there near the white houses, groups of black trees, absolutely black bushes and trees. Over all this hung a whitish sky, quivering with light, which made everything still paler, still drier and more wearily light, never a glimmer of luxuriant, satiated hues, nothing but hungry, sun-parched colors, not a sound in the air, not a scythe passing through the grass, not a wagon rattling over the roads, and the town stretching out on both sides was also as if built of silence with all the streets still as at noontime, with all the houses deaf and dumb, every shutter closed, every blind. Drawn, each and every one, houses that could neither see nor hear. Mrs. Fonts viewed this lifeless monotony with a resigned smile, but it made Eleanor visibly nervous, not actively nervous as in the case of annoyance, but mournful and weary, as one often becomes after many days of rain, when all one's gloomy thoughts seem to pour down upon one with the rain, or as at the idiotically consoling tick-tack of a clock, when one sits and grows incurably tired of oneself, or at watching the flowers of the wallpaper, when the same chain of worn-out dreams clanks. About against one's will in the brain, and the links are joined and come apart, and in a stifling endlessness are united again. It actually had a physical effect upon her, this landscape, almost causing her to faint. Today everything seemed to have conspired with the memories of a hope which was dead, and of sweet and lively dreams which had become disagreeable and nauseous, dreams which caused her to redden when she thought of them, and which yet she could not forget. And what had all that to do with the region here? The blow had fallen upon her far from here amid the surroundings of her home, by the edge of a sound with changing waters, under pale green beech trees. Yet it hovered on the lips of every pale brown hill, and every green shuttered house stood there and held silence concerning it. It was the old sorrow for young hearts which had touched her. She had loved a man and believed in his love for her, and suddenly he had chosen someone else. Why? For what reason? What had she done to him? Had she changed? Was she no longer the same? And all the eternal questions over again. She had not said a word about it to her mother, but her mother had understood every bit of it and had been very concerned about her. She could have screamed at this thoughtfulness which knew and yet should not have known. Her mother understood this also, and for that reason they had gone traveling. The whole purpose of the journey was only that she might forget. Then, too, she was afraid of doing injury to her daughter if she made confidences too easy. She did not wish to have Eleanor blush before her, she did want, however much of a relief it might be, to help her over the humiliation, 
which lies in opening the inmost recesses of one soul to the gaze of another. On the contrary the more difficult it became for both, the more she was pleased, that the aristocracy of soul which she herself possessed was repeated in her young daughter in a certain healthy inflexibility. Once upon a time, it was a time many, many years ago, when she herself had been an eighteen-year-old girl, she had loved with all her soul, with every sense in her body, every living hope, every thought. It was not to be, could not be. He had had nothing to offer except his loyalty, which would have involved the test of an endlessly long engagement, and there were circumstances in her home which could not wait. So she had taken the one whom they had given her, the one who was master over these circumstances. They were married, then came children, Tage, the son, who was with her in Avignon, and the daughter, who sat beside her, everything had turned out so much better than she could have hoped for, both easier and more friendly. Eight years it lasted, then the husband died, and she mourned him with a sincere heart. She had learned to love his fine, thin-blooded nature, which with a tense, egotistic, almost morbid love loved whatever belonged to it by ties of relationship or family and cared not for anything in all the great world outside, except for what they thought, what their opinion was nothing else. After her husband's death, she had lived chiefly for her children, but she had not devoted herself exclusively to them, she had taken part in social life, as was natural for so young and well-to-do a widow, and now her son was twenty-one years old, and she lacked not many days of forty. But she was still beautiful. There was not a gray thread in her heavy dark blonde hair, not a wrinkle round her large, courageous eyes, and her figure was slender with well-balanced fullness. The strong, fine lines of her features were accentuated by the darker more deeply colored complexion which the years had given her, the smile of her widely sweeping lips was very sweet, an almost enigmatical youth in the dewy luminosity of her brown eyes softened and mellowed everything again. And yet she also had the round fullness of cheek, the strong-willed chin of a mature woman. That surely is Tage coming, said Mrs. Fonz to her daughter, when she heard laughter and some Danish exclamations on the other side of the thick hedge of hornbeam. Eleanor pulled herself together. And it was Tage, Tage and Castiger, a wholesale merchant from Copenhagen, with his sister and daughter, Mrs. Castiger lay ill at home in the hotel. Mrs. Fonts and Eleanor made room for the two ladies, the men tried for a moment to converse standing, but were lured by the low wall of stone which surrounded the spot. They sat there and said only what was absolutely necessary, for the newcomers were tired from a little railway excursion they had taken into the province with its blooming roses. Hello, cried Tage, striking his light trousers with the flat of his hand, look. They looked. Out in the brown landscape appeared a cloud of dust, over it a mantle of dust, and between the two they caught sight of a horse. That's the Englishman, I told you about, who came the other day, said Tage, turning toward his mother. Did you ever see anyone ride like that, he asked, turning toward Castiger, he reminds me of a gaucho. Mazeppa, said Castiger, questioningly. The horseman disappeared. Then they all rose and set out for the hotel. They had met the Castigers in Belfort, 
and since they were pursuing the same itinerary through southern France and along the Riviera, they for the time being traveled together. Here in Avignon both families had made a halt, Castiger, because his wife had developed a varicose vein, the fonts because Eleanor obviously needed a rest. Tage was delighted at this living together. Day by day he fell more and more incurably in love with the pretty Ida Castiger. Mrs. Fonts did not especially like this. Though Tage was very self-reliant and mature for his age, there was no reason for a hasty engagement, and there was Mr. Castiger. Ida was a splendid little girl, Mrs. Castiger was a very well-bred woman of excellent family, and Castiger himself was capable, rich, and honest, but there was a hint of the absurd about him. A smile came upon people's lips and a twinkle into their eyes when anyone mentioned Mr. Castiger. The reason for this was that he was full of fire and given to extraordinary enthusiasms. He was frankly ingenuous, boisterous, and communicative, and nowadays it requires a great deal of tact to be lavish with enthusiasm. But Mrs. Fonts could not bear the thought that Tage's father-in-law should be mentioned with a twinkle in the eye and a smile round the mouth and for that reason she exhibited a certain coldness toward the family to the great sorrow of the enamored Tage. On the morning of the following day Tage and his mother had gone to look at the little museum of the town. They found the gate open, but the doors to the collection locked, ringing the bell proved fruitless. The gateway, however, gave admission to the not specially large court, which was surrounded by a freshly whitewashed arcade whose short squat columns had black iron bars between them. They walked about and looked at the objects placed along the wall, Roman sepulchral monuments, pieces of sarcophagi, a headless draped figure, the dorsal vertebra of a whale, and a series of architectural details. On all the objects of interest there were fresh traces of the mason's brushes. By now they had come back to their starting point. Tage ran up the stairs to see if there might not be people somewhere in the house, and Mrs. Fonts in the meantime walked up and down the arcade. As she was on the turn toward the gate a tall man with a bearded, tanned face appeared at the end of the passage directly in front of her. He had a guidebook in his hand, he listened for something, and then looked forward, straight at her. The Englishman of yesterday immediately came to her mind. Pardon me, he began interrogatively and bowed. I am a stranger, Mrs. Fonts replied. Nobody seems to be at home, but my son has just run upstairs to see whether. These words were exchanged in French. At this moment Tage arrived. I have been everywhere, he said, even in the living quarters, but didn't find as much as a cat. I hear, said the Englishman, this time in Danish, that I have the pleasure of being with fellow countrymen. 